Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Aton Levine. My grandmother, I'm a cancer survivor. After I got cancer, the first thing she said was, I swear to God, over phone, she just goes, he didn't get it from my side of the family. Hung up. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to remind you that we have so much wonderful bonus content over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. We have so many check-ins. In fact, on Friday, May 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, we're going to record a Q&A with Risk fans as one of the Patreon check-ins that we'll record and post later. You can find out more information if you go to patreon.com slash risk. And while you're there, you'll also notice we have so many bonus stories there, like we just put one up by Elena Pritchard. So, given that things were already tense, it wasn't all that surprising when the lady gets up and sucker punches crazy eyes right in the face and says, There! That's how it felt when you hit your grandpa. (laughs) There's over 150 of those bonus stories at patreon.com slash risk. Becoming a member will help us keep Risk running. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Herbie Hancock. Behind me now, and even more, even more prominent behind me now, is my cat, Quincy. 
Well, we hope you come out if you are anywhere near New York City on Thursday, May 19th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. That's our next live show in New York at Caveat. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. We are considering doing less shows in New York City in the future, so it'll become more and more important to get your tickets ahead of time when you do hear about them happening. We're calling this week's episode Changeovers. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was recorded not at a live risk show, but at the show called The Artichoke in Beacon, New York. I'll say more about The Artichoke later, but you can find him at artichokeshow.com. This is a story by Aaron Barker, one of our favorite people and a very important person at the show called The Story Collider. Aaron's the executive director of that fantastic show that focuses on stories that have a uh, connection to science. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Aaron H. Barker. Here she is now with a story we call Plants and People. So my whole life, I was always an underachiever. I had a stunning 2.5 GPA in high school, greatly to my mom's disappointment. But I really liked hanging out with serious students. And when it came to uh, dating, national merit scholars were my type. I liked guys with really big SAT scores. That's what I was into. The kind of guys who read serious literature and saw serious films, not movies, but films, (laughs) that they would drag me to for my intellectual betterment. I saw The Pianist, uh, which is a movie with a hilarious title, but it is not hilarious. Fair warning, not a lot of laughs in that one. By the time I graduated high school, though, I felt like I've seen enough documentaries, I've had my grammar corrected enough times, I'm ready for something different. So when I went to college, I decided I wanted to date somebody like me, another underachiever. And the first day of college, I met Kurt. And I knew right away that Kurt was the underachiever I was looking for. And first, because his name was Kurt. I mean, if your first name is Kurt and your last name isn't Vonnegut, you're probably not the greatest mind of your generation. Let's just be honest. Sorry to any Kurtz in the audience tonight. Second, because we met at a party, and it wasn't the kind of party where you talked about you know, documentaries and art. It was the kind of party where you did keg stands and you bonged beers. And then third, because our first conversation that we ever had was him telling me a story about the time that he got arrested for open container and how hilarious and awesome it was and how it was totally worth it. (laughs) And that was when I knew this is the one. It's the one I've been waiting for. (laughs) And when I looked into his beautiful hazel eyes, I knew I would never read another book by an author named Jonathan again. And it was an amazing time in my life. I saw the movie Dodgeball uh, with no shame. I watched an entire season of Family Guy in one sitting. I drank way too much natural light. I ate my weight in Gushers fruit snacks. It was incredible. It was an amazing time. 
But after a while, I started to wonder, though, if maybe Kurt was a little bit too much fun. Like, there was this night when I woke up to this very warm and wet feeling. <laughs> and I realized that Kurt had had so much to drink that he had wet the bed with me in it. <laughs> and so I got up, I woke him up, I said, Kurt, you wet the bed, you gotta go back to your room and change while I change the sheets. He comes back and he has taken out his contacts and put on glasses, but he is still wearing the urine-soaked clothes. <laughs> I said, Kurt, you did the wrong thing, you gotta go back. Even after this, though, if I had to pinpoint the exact moment when I really realized that things were going downhill, it was the moment when I was sitting in my dorm room, minding my own business, and suddenly he ran in, jumped on me, and farted on me, and started laughing hysterically. That was the moment when I really started to wonder if we were really the same kind of person. Kurt had a dream, and his, his dream was to one day buy a boat and drift around aimlessly for the rest of his life, like a character from a Jimmy Buffett song. And while I, as a fellow underachiever, could certainly appreciate the appeal of this dream, part of me was finding it increasingly difficult to picture myself on this boat, eating gushers and being farted on for the rest of my life. So I thought... What Kurt needs is a goal, right? Like, nothing too ambitious, because that wasn't what we did. But just, you know, something that he could want to be when he grew up. So he could grow up just enough to get past the point of farting on people. And then we'd be all set. So I decided that Kurt's passion was the environment. Because who doesn't love the environment? People love whales. People love the rainforest. And plus, Kurt, he played a lot of golf, and he smoked a lot of weed, and that, to me, spoke to him being very in tune with nature. And so I suggested this to Kurt, and he good-naturedly agreed and declared a major of environmental studies. So uh, his first class was going to be a plant biology course, and I decided to take it with him just to get him started. Um, and plus, I needed to take a science class, any science class at all, to graduate with my degree in journalism. And this one sounded like the easiest possible A. It was called Plant Biology 101, Plants and People. It doesn't get more straightforward than that. I'd seen plants, I knew people, I felt like I could handle this. So uh, we go to our first day of class, and we sit in the back, and we're like that annoying couple that's doodling in each other's notebooks and stuff like that. And our professor comes in, Professor Glenn Matlack, and he is wearing a red flannel shirt and suspenders and big boots, and he's carrying an axe. <laughs> and I keep waiting for him to mention this as part of his lecture, and he never does, never brings it up. And the next day, he comes back wearing the same lumberjack outfit, again, never mentions it. He wears this outfit every day for the entire semester, never explains. And we're all too afraid that he might be insane uh, to ever ask him about it. I don't even know, like, are, are we allowed to have an axe on campus? That doesn't feel like it should be allowed. Uh, but as soon as I stop thinking about the axe, which he just kind of casually sets on the podium while he lectures... I start to listen to what he's talking about. And he's talking about 
forest fragmentation, which is this idea that you know, when humans expand out into the suburbs, forest gets cut up into little pieces. And this is bad because animals with large home ranges or like the areas they roam throughout their lives, they end up going outside these fragments of forest into dangerous places for them like roads and parking lots and backyards. And it's also bad for the forest itself because there's less interior forest and there's more edge, which means there's more light and sound permeating the forest and changing the conditions, making it uninhabitable for some species of animals and plants, and also like more susceptible to fire and pollution and invasive species and all of this shit. And this is blowing my mind because I've never heard about this before. I thought that like living in the suburbs was environmentally friendly compared to the cities. And it's totally blowing my mind that like, despite my you know, recycling and my curly light bulbs and my futile vote for John Kerry, that like, I could actually be part of the problem because of my lawn and my golf course neighborhood. And I'm just really shaken up by this. And I look over at Kurt to see if he's reacting. And he's kind of glazed over. He's either um, just not impressed or stoned or asleep with his eyes open. I'm not really sure. It's hard to tell the difference. So. Our big project in this class is to get an aerial photo of the town where we grew up from the year we were born and an aerial photo of it from the present day. And we have to kind of map out the forest cover and compare it over this 20-year time span and write this big paper about like how things have changed and how it might have affected the local environment. Kurt decides he doesn't even want to go to the trouble to get the photos, so he just makes up all the numbers for his paper and goes back to watching Family Guy. But I get super into it. I've got the photos like laid out on my dorm room floor. I've got a compass. I've got a protractor. I'm like taking meticulous notes. I'm making calculations. I'm getting very concerned about the eastern wood rat. I'm having a lot of feelings about voles. And Kurt comes in and he offers me some gushers and I'm like, no, Kurt, I do not have time for gushers right now. I'm thinking about the timber rattlesnake and like, if we lose the timber rattlesnake, what is going to happen to the food chain? He's like, I don't fucking know, I don't care. <laughs> he leaves. And I just get so into this assignment more than any other assignment that I've ever had in school. And when, after we turn it in, and the day when uh, a week later Glenn Matlack is going around and passing all of our papers back to us, I see that Kurt has a D. And he's like, well, it's pretty good considering I made up all my numbers. And I agree, it's a great job. Uh, but I look at my paper, and Glenn Matlack has scrawled across the front of it in bright red ink, you have a future in this. And nobody has ever told me I had a future in anything, much less fucking plant biology, of all things. So I'm just totally shocked. It did turn out Glenn Matlack was wrong. <laughs> I did not have a future in plant biology. I'm, I'm not speaking to you today as a plant biologist. But I also did not have a future on a boat with Kurt. Because what I learned was that I had it in me to work hard on something, and I wasn't meant to drift aimlessly for the rest of my life. So after college, I moved to New York, and I started a nonprofit called The Story Collider. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Which, uh, well, thanks. <laughs> Which helps scientists tell stories about their work so that people can get as excited about science as I got in Glenn Matlack's class about plant biology. 
Kurt, though he lost his passion for me, did actually retain some passion for the environment. He became a park ranger, which is an occupation that leaves him plenty of time for weed and family guy. So I'm, I wish him very well. And that last day of Plant Biology 101, Plants and People, I got the courage to go up to Glenn Matlack. And I said to him, Professor Matlack, I have to ask you, why did you dress up as a lumberjack every day of class? And he kind of chuckled and he said, I was just fucking with you guys. <laughs> Thanks. I wanted to be a lumberjack. The giant redwood, the mighty Scots pine. <laughs> My best girly by my side The crash of mighty trees Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is Risk. This is Talking Heads behind me now. And we just heard from Aaron Barker. And that was recorded at the Artichoke in Beacon, New York. You can catch the next Artichoke show on May 14th. And the video for the show will be available as well at artichokeshow.com. Before that, a little interstitial by Nick Lias. We now have a whole Slack channel for anyone who is interested in creating audio interstitials for the show. If you're curious about that, just email john, J-O-H-N, at risk-show.com. And another thing you might want to email to john at risk-show.com, our 600th episode is coming up very soon, and we would like to get your testimonials. We would like to hear from Risk fans. Tell us about how you first discovered the show or what story 
meant the most to you or how risk has affected your life journey, what it's been like sharing it with others. Feel free to express yourself any way you want, however you like. Everything you need to know is over at our Facebook. That's at risk show. And we just need you to get those into us by May 25th when we'll be putting together that 600th episode of Risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Molly McCloy, a remarkable story that she shared at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City. But before that, a story by Aton Levine, who has his own podcast you should check out. It's called Good Jew, Bad Jew, that he that he co-hosts with Matthew Brassard. And here is Aton now recorded at Risk Live at Caveat in New York City with a story we call Burying Bubby. When my grandmother died, it was at the height of coronavirus. She died in April 2020, in the first week of April 2020. To give you a little context about when that happened, it was a time when in the city, I don't know if you remember, but it was silent. There wasn't really much happening except for sirens. There wasn't any construction, no cars, it was just sirens. And on top of that, it was a time when we were all getting our news from press conferences. I don't know if you guys were like me, but every day, for the first six months of this pandemic, I would wake up, I would get immediately stoned, and then watch 10 hours of Andrew Cuomo every day. <laughs> that was what, I would get blazed, and then I'd watch this idiot get on, just be like, guys, don't worry about it, ah! The M&M store's making ventilators? We got the cast of Hamilton sewing surgical masks? A bunch of Mormons built the hospital in the Times Square Olive Garden, guys. We are New York tough, baby. Every day I'd wake up and there would be a new hospital. That would, remember the boat? <laughs> remember the fucking boat? Every day I'd wake up and I'd just be like, God, I do not want to die in the Jacob Javits Center. That is my only wish. I don't want to die, and then right before I die, I'm just like, I met Stan Lee here, and then <laughs> ventilated immediately. Those press conferences, they would say like crazy stuff, but they would say like enthusiastically. Like, they'd be like, guys, we got good news. City MD is in charge of vaccines. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a city MD, but city MD is like if a hospital, it's a hospital where you know more than the doctors do at this hospital. And the first day that I realized that my grandmother was going to die was because of those press conferences, because my dad called me up one morning and said that my grandmother was being tested with this new drug called hydroxychloroquine. And then that day was the first day that Trump started talking about hydroxychloroquine. And the second he started talking about I'm like, she's dead. That's it. She's, she's dead. And the way we said goodbye to her was over a phone call. To give you some context about the way we said goodbye to her was they put us on a call with her. They put us on a phone with her. And then they also put us on hold 
in the middle of the phone call, which was awful because I was like crying, but like to the hospital's on hold music for a while. So I'm like sobbing to this like boo bop shoo bop butter. <laughs> and then like every couple of minutes, this voiceover would come on and just be like, coronavirus is very serious. Make sure to wash your hands. Boo bop shoo bop butter butter. Coronavirus, very serious. Make sure to wash your hands. Boo bop shoo bop butter. Coronavirus, just for five minutes, over and over. And then eventually we get clicked into the room and it's silent. And we're talking to my grandmother, who is, she was ventilated at that point, she wasn't conscious, and I was crying at that point. I said that I loved her. I remember saying that I loved her. I remember saying that I felt like it was unfair that she was dying like this, so secluded. And you know, my mom said the Shema, which uh, we're Jewish, it's a Jewish prayer you're supposed to say, and eventually the call ended. And when the call ended, all of a sudden I'm, al I'm alone again, just in my room, alone. And a week later, my grandmother passes. And just to tell you a little bit about my grandmother, my grandmother's story. My grandmother, I loved her to death. We were very, very close. She was the meanest human being alive. I think that, that everyone's grandmother has just like a plate full of cookies ready to go in one hand and then a bucket full of insults ready to go. <laughs> like every time I would go to her house, it was always like, I made homemade fudge. Your father was a mistake. Every <laughs> Every, this is how big of a ball buster my grandmother was. My grandfather was also a Holocaust survivor. And he got out of the Holocaust and he went back to Paris and like fucked around in Paris for a bunch of years. And he was known as being a guy that would like have sex with a lot of women. Now, why was I told this about my sweet, sweet Zadie? I do not know. But apparently Moisha Eckstein was the original fuckboy of Paris, right? <laughs> But that wasn't the guy that I met. The guy that I met was a quiet shell of a human because whatever the Nazis did to my grandfather all those years wasn't as bad as whatever my bubby did to my grandfather <laughs> all those years. My grandfather got out of the Holocaust and was like, boom, 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 Tom, Tom, fucking, 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 fucking. But then after my grandmother, he was like, I don't buy eggs without her permission. <laughs> Like, way different. My grandmother, I'm a cancer survivor. After I got cancer, the first thing she said was, I swear to God, over phone, she just goes, he didn't get it from my side of the family. Hung up. <laughs> After the Holocaust, my grandmother was on a boat going from Europe to America that was sponsored by the United Jewish Appeal, the UJA. And on this boat, they had a problem because they had all these scared Holocaust survivors that were going to America. They're all terrified. So they have a bunch of events on the boat to boost morale. And one of the events that they have on this boat is a beauty pageant. Now, let me just say that again. One of the events that they have on the Holocaust boat is a beauty pageant. And my grandmother won the Holocaust beauty pageant. So when we go to bury her, it's the height of the pandemic. And to set the scene, when we get there, there is a row of nine hearses. There was a backlog of bodies when we went to bury her. It's nine hearses. And I'm standing next to my mother, and we're looking out at this, at this line of hearses. And it's this weird, it's this like moment that I've, I've replayed in my mind so many times. 
And it's that my mom was like looking at this line of hearses and my mom goes, I can't believe Bubby died. Bubby was a Holocaust survivor. She got out of the Holocaust and she went from Europe to America and built a beautiful life in America and she survived and, thr- and now she's dead. And she was fine three weeks ago and now she's dead and she's in, she's in one of these hearses. And at that point, my dad completely oblivious to the emotional weight of the situation, proceeded to walk across the cemetery parking lot and look into each hearse and just yell back, no! Yeah, no, not this one either! He goes through seven different hearses. He gets to the last hearse, he looks in and he goes, I'd Irene! Your mom's body's in this hearse. And then we followed that hearse to the hole, and we get to the hole, we learn a bunch of complications. First of all, no one had identified the body, which is a big deal for Judaism. So that was like a hang-up. And the second thing that happens is that we realized no one had ever met this rabbi before. Our rabbi had gotten sick the day of the funeral. So we had to get a replacement rabbi that we never met before. So he started his eulogy by going... I did not know Lillian, but when I got here, I was informed that in the Holocaust, she worked in the kitchens of Auschwitz, the concentration camp. My mother also worked in the kitchens of Auschwitz. Maybe they knew each other. And he doesn't say anything else, but he scans the audience until we lock eyes. Doesn't say anything until I yell back, yeah, maybe. (laughs) And then he goes, okay, good, and continues (laughs) to do the eulogy and gets all this information wrong about my family. He's just like, oh, she's survived by her great-grandkids, Eitan, Avital, Tamar, and Menachem. First of all, we were grandkids. Second of all, there's no Menachem at all. That was a made-up Jewish kid. <laughs> like, he saw our family come, he's like, oh, the Levines are here? There's gotta be a Menachem Levine. How could there not be a Menachem Levine? At one point during the eulogy, he goes, she survived by her daughters, Marilyn, and that one. <laughs> And I couldn't tell why he was getting all this information wrong because I looked inside of his sitter, his prayer book, and inside of it is a page that just says, eulogy for Holocaust survivors. And then it's missing lines like Mad Lib style. (laughs) Like before the funeral, he went to my mom. He was like, I need a name. I need an adverb. And what's your favorite Leonard Cohen quote? So then I go up there and I decide to start my eulogy by going, hey, where do we get this guy? Task rabbi? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody laughed. (laughs) Nobody was like, oh good, who wants to see Eitan do his thing now? Just what, who wants to see what not going to law school looks like? Eitan's here. Now, the end of this story is that I ended up writing um, about this funeral for the New York Times, and I I bring that up for two reasons. One, um, it's very impressive. (laughs) 
The second is that after, after the article comes out, the Shoah Foundation reached out to me. The Shoah Foundation is Steven Spielberg's Holocaust Memorial, Holocaust uh, living uh, video where they used to interview all of these survivors. So Steven Spielberg's company emails me and they go, we have two and a half hours of video of your grandmother getting interviewed in 1995. And from that, I got my grandmother's entire Holocaust story. I'm not going to say it now, but I will say that something became very clear to me in this video, and that is that my grandmother speaks for about two hours atrocity, atrocity ever tried talking about her moving through Czechoslovakia and Germany, and through, she went through three different concentration camps, hard life, and my grandfather is sitting there the entire time silent. And at the end of it, they ask him, they go, what is your story? And he just goes, we're very lucky to have Lillian. <laughs> and then went back to not speaking. <laughs> I always wondered if my grandfather was always silent. <laughs> and the answer is, yeah, that guy never spoke at all. Guys, thank you so much. I made Tom Levine. Thing I've ever written was called Dead Flies and Duct Tape, which was a TripAdvisor review for a hotel that really should have given me a refund. <laughs> but the most important thing I've ever written I wrote when I was 22. And so this was 19, uh, 1992, and I was at the Evergreen State College uh, where I was getting a BA in making fun of hippies. I was majoring in applied cunnilingus. Earn that 4.0. <laughs> My favorite lesbian prank was to lean over the dorm balcony and yell out to guys, hey, I fucked your mom. <laughs> I was also madly in love with this married woman and I spent all of my time trying to get her to leave her husband. So I was not thinking at all about my family back in Phoenix until the night of October 7th, 1992, when I had this dream about my dad. And in the dream, my dad is roped to a chair and this military interrogator is right in his face. And my dad is telling this guy all about his brutal childhood. He's telling him how he didn't always have enough to eat as a kid and how his own dad beat him with a two by four and I already know these stories as the reason that my dad was angry and violent when I was a kid. But here he is crying in this dream, which is something I've never seen him do in real life. And then this amazing thing happens. He manages to get his arm under the ropes 
and he reaches his hand out to me like he needs my help. And I think, well, maybe I can help my dad break the curse of the shitty McCloy childhood. I'll give it a shot. And I wake up the next day in my apartment in Olympia, and I start this letter to my dad, and I write, Dear Dad, and it's all about how I want things to be better. Uh, because he's gotten counseling, and he'll take me out to lunch when I'm in Phoenix, but we're not really close. And when I get to the end of the letter, I can't sign it. And there's a good reason for that. Because even though I'm 22, and living in my own apartment, there is this deeper, darker part of me that is still a little nine-year-old in Phoenix, and it's my dad's birthday. And I hand him this card I've signed for him. And I'm really excited for him to read my signature. It has this special message for him. My dad opens the card and reads my signature line out loud to everybody. Your loving daughter, Molly. He mocks me, and he laughs at me, and both of my brothers laugh at me. And those two are looking at me like, Molly, you idiot. Of course we're not allowed to tell Dad we love him on his birthday. <laughs> like, clearly I should have checked in with these two before I dared to sign a greeting card. And I've got my whole family laughing at me. I had somehow forgotten that, you know, my dad doesn't let us call him daddy, and my brothers have been calling him Mad Dog Mike. <laughs> and I just tossed my heart in the middle of this room, and they're stomping all over it. And I decide right there at nine years old, I'm never taking another emotional risk ever again. Which cues up my destiny as someone who tells random dudes I fucked their mothers. <laughs> because I want to be the one laughing. But here I am, and I've written my dad this letter, and I'm afraid to send it to him because I'm afraid he's going to make fun of it. So instead of putting the letter in the mailbox that day, I put on my flannel shirt, my Doc Martens, and I head out to the campus art museum. This is probably a good time to tell you that when I entered my bong in the art show, I didn't think they'd actually put my bong in the art show. It was called the Tortured Love Bong, and I made it as a tribute to the married woman who wouldn't leave her husband. So I made it really shitty on purpose. I used chewing gum to stick a tinfoil bowl onto a plastic milk jug, and then I collaged the milk jug with cheesy statements about soulmates. And then bong water turned the whole thing brown, which is the artist I like to call a patina. And so here was my bong in this glass case in the middle of the art exhibit so that it could haunt you from anywhere in the room, just like the Mona Lisa. And the title card read Love by Gloria Winsong, which was also my pen name for sarcastic nature poems I published in the college newspaper. So when it comes to making fun of hippies, the tortured love bong by Gloria Winsong was my capstone project. <laughs> I was pretty psyched on this achievement. But then I took a second look at the bong and I realized, you know, maybe if my dad hadn't made fun of that birthday card when I was nine, maybe I would have been able to tell the married woman that I was in love with her. 
because not doing that before her wedding at this point is my greatest regret of 22 years of life. Like, maybe if I could have cut the sarcasm for two seconds, I could be with the woman that I love instead of smoking weed out of a milk jug. (laughs) So at this point, I realize I've got to go home and confront the McCloy shitty childhood because it has been punking my adult love life. (laughs) I got to take care of this. And I don't want to send Mad Dog Mike some letter offering him something. I want to send him a letter demanding something. So I start a whole new letter. And I write, Dear Dad, you have hurt me deeply. I want apologies for the following events. And I write, number one. And I really don't want to go back to number one. Because number one takes me right back into my body as a little 10-year-old in a prairie girl nightgown, lying on the shag carpet, and my dad has just kicked me. And getting back up from that carpet is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It felt like I was swimming through heavy mud. And now that heaviness is filling my apartment in Olympia. But I do it. I write, number one, the time you dragged me down the hallway and kicked me in the chest. And as soon as I put the period after the word chest, I feel just a little bit better. I feel good enough to let myself go back to being small and helpless so that I can remember number two. And then I go back to being small and helpless for number three and small and helpless for number four. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, at least I got done with number one because that's got to be the worst one, right? It's my one example of physical violence. But then I get to number seven, and that's the time that my dad laughed at my signature on the birthday card, and I just lose it. I break down crying. I'm just this ugly heap of snot and tears. And I think, well, how can I, how can I keep going? How can I finish this letter? And I realize I'm just going to have to cop to it. I'm going to have to be honest with my dad about how I feel right now just remembering this stuff. And so I write, I cried a little bit with each one of these, but with this one I cried the most. It hurt so much because I offered you love and was rejected. And it's the most honest, vulnerable thing I've ever written. But having to be that honest and vulnerable about a bunch of childhood bullshit that's not my fault gets me nice and angry for number eight and number nine, and now I'm just going for it. Like, I don't care that my dad came to every softball game. I don't care that he had a bad childhood himself. He's been cruel to me, and I want him to own up to it. And I have no trouble signing this one. I sign this one. You might as well apologize because you'll see me at Christmas. Molly. (laughs) And I imagine myself taking a big bite from a turkey leg and staring down Mad Dog Mike until he blinks first. And the next day, I stick both letters in the envelope and I send it out. And I have no idea what I'm going to get back from this. And a week goes by, and then another week goes by, and another week goes by. And then there it is. There's a letter from my dad in the mailbox. And it's a pretty decent-sized letter. 
I open it, open the envelope, and the first line is, Dear Molly, there is no excuse for doing anything but loving you. And it keeps going like this. It's nine paragraphs of apology, one paragraph for each grudge. And I didn't even know he was capable of something like this, so I'm completely blown away. And I'm also just relieved that he wasn't mean to me. You know, I breathe this sigh of relief that feels like it's 22 years long. <sighs> and then comes Christmas. And my dad says, you know, let's go take a walk in the park together, which is something we never do. And when we're there, he turns to me and says, you know, Molly, I asked my own dad for apologies right before he died, but he wouldn't do it. And I'm not going to make that mistake with you. And his eyes are wet, just like that dad in the dream. And we drive the first crack into the curse of the shitty McCloy childhood that day. But I can't say we broke it. <laughs> can't say that. Can't say we just overcame intergenerational trauma in 10 minutes. And we've been chipping away at it for 30 years now with a lot more walks together. We even took a backpacking trip through the Grand Canyon, but we still haven't broken it. But what I can say is that that letter that I wrote in 1992 was the most important thing I've ever written because it brought me my dad. And I still really don't like getting honest and vulnerable. Like tonight, I just wanted to tell you guys about all the carpet-munching adventures of Gloria Winsong. <laughs> but I'm at my best when I take my cue from the little girl who signed a birthday card, your loving daughter, Molly. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is R.E.M. behind me now. And we just heard from Molly McCloy. Molly is currently seeking representation for her memoir, Nine Grudges, The Spiteful Origins of the Happiest Dyke on Earth. Find out more at mollymcloy.com. Folks, don't forget that we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. All kinds of workshops that you can take online or download videos and take in your own time. We also do custom-tailored corporate workshops for staffs of businesses or, or teams of organizations. All of that can be found 
at thestorystudio.org. And look for Risk on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Risk Show. And anything you need to know about Risk is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>